Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Hello, and welcome to Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka. This program is episode two in the saga of Mohawks relocating from Quebec to Muskoka in 1881. After the Protestant Mohawks left Kanasataki that October, and with Indian agent McGeer, who represented Canada's Department of Indian Affairs away having accompanied them to Muskoka, the Sulpicians moved quickly to seize Mohawk property. The house of her grandmother, Grace Franks, learned in time, was near the Catholic Church and the nuns' building, and the Sulpicians wanted it. When she did not leave for Muskoka, a priest came to the house, argued, and pushed her against the stove. Expecting, she suffered a miscarriage. In addition to carrying their child, another reason she had not left was that her husband, whom she would not abandon, was in jail for cutting winter firewood. Elsewhere, as remaining chiefs John DeWasha and Mitchell Frett reported, the seminarians forcibly took possession of another house. Some occupants of it had left on the Dagmar, the steam vessel that carried them down the Ottawa River to a waiting train at St. Anne's, but others still resided in it. The Sulpicians sent police, reinforced by 40 Frenchmen, who beat the remaining men and women and expelled them from the dwelling. As I said in our last broadcast, piety had evaporated from the Sulpician Seminary. Now, as for the migrants, those not staying in Gravenhurst continued that October by steamboat to Bala, then downriver by canoe and scow as far as Red Rock on the Musquash River, where they made camp as October turned to November. Chief Sahanation scanned dark clouds descending and gave orders to pitch tents in a winter pattern and gather firewood. They awakened next morning to a foot of snow. Nobody stirred except several hunters who killed a deer for venison. As winter's first snow melted, families scouted their new territory, walking about two miles from the river, examining the soil, choosing places for their cabins. They had been told, as an inducement to move, that buildings awaited them because the Sulpicians agreed to build one for each family. Of course, none existed yet, because the families first had to select locations. It was a classic catch-22. 
After erecting three shanties, at least, they fashioned sleighs and hauled belongings from the river encampment. Those having no cabin lived in the Red Rock landing camp tents through that winter. To their surprise, Mohawks discovered squatters with French names, likely Métis people, on this land. They offered to sell or share their log cabins with the new arrivals, desperate for winter shelter. When those who moved in could not pay because their money had gone for food, the squatters felt jilted and threatened to destroy what the Mohawks had themselves built. Agent McGeer reported the deteriorating situation to Ottawa. As a power-wielding Indian agent, John McGeer was a go-between, representing the department to the Indians and presenting needs of First Nations to his employer, Indian Affairs, at Ottawa. But even when taking up issues, as McGeer was increasingly doing for the Mohawks in Muskoka, two basic hurdles existed. Governments, department officials, and entities like the Sulpician Seminary were all implementing assimilation programs to make First Nations culturally white. Second, Indian agents themselves saw their charges through race-tinted glasses, treating them as children, often misreading stoicism and silence for lack of feelings like civilized white people experience. At least now, living with the Mohawk experiences and away from the Sulpicians, McGeer became deeply troubled by their urgent needs. Early, when the Mohawks planned relocating with Indian Affairs, they listed basics for establishing a settlement from scratch. Farming tools, seed grain, cows, horses, bulls, and a grist mill to grind flour from wheat. Also, food, stoves, and clothing a doctor, school, sawmill, road, and woolen factory, all as well, but nothing had arrived. The Mohawks were destitute. McGeer implored Ottawa to send stoves, stovepipes, and other promised necessities nowhere yet in sight. Indian Affairs, which had largely, largely left matters concerning Mohawks at uh, Kanasataki to the Sulpicians, continued its out-of-sight, out-of-mind approach. Some molasses and salted pork arrived, but instead of sending essential supplies or even food enough for the first winter, Ottawa instructed the men to find work in mills to earn food money. The closest mill in Muskoka was 22 miles distant and closed for winter. Each family's $3,005 compensation for their homes went to food. By December 1881, three cabins, as I mentioned, had been built to accommodate a number of families, and the rest were either in tents or moved into squatters' shanties. People were living on the edge of starvation all winter. Six Mohawk children perished. By spring, some layover families from Gravenhurst arrived, though others, their continued town living. 
The relocating families settled in and worked to make a new home in Muskoka, clearing land, building homes, and holding worship services. In 1882, several cabins, 18 feet by 24 feet per family, were built to seminary specifications. Those are the ones that the Sulpicians were paying for. Two rooms, a loft and staircase, a window and door to each room. Indian Affairs paid off the squatters directly for their buildings, in which some 16 resettled families now live. But repairs that Mohawks made to squatters' shanties would not be paid for. By 1884, 14 more houses had been erected. Because of its hard maples, the Mohawks began using the distinctive name Wata for their settlement. W-A-H-T-A, Wata. Although Gibson Reserve also continued in common use because of the being in Gibson Township of West Muskoka, well into the 20th century. They encouraged friends and family at Kanasataki to come, but could not answer their inquiries about the legal status of the Wata lands. Some arrivals liked the reserve better than conditions at Kanasataki, but wouldn't relocate until the ownership puzzle was solved. Only a third of the Mohawks at Kanasataki uh, relocated to Muskoka. Several pioneering families who came in October 1881 went back while others who temporarily wintered in Gravenhurst stayed on there. So the Sulpicians sought a refund, saying it had paid Ottawa for more land than was needed. In January 1886, Indian Affairs returned unspent money to the impatient priests. The following year, in 1887, Mohawks living at Tyendiaga near Belleville, across Lake Ontario from their historic homelands, Again, feared settler society's relentless encroachments. Knowing of the Mohawk relocation to Wata, they wanted also land in Gibson Township. Representatives from Teyendinaga uh, visited and pleased about the land and a fellow nation community sought with Indian Affairs to buy 15,000 acres and move to Muskoka. Indian Affairs said it was premature to sell any water lands because all Mohawks at Kanasataki might eventually move there. Indiana and and it would but it would ask Ontario's Crown Land Commission if land abutting Freeman Township in in, in abutting Freeman Township beside uh, Gibson was available instead. That unsurprisingly came to nothing. Uncertainty about the land's ownership overshadowed everything. When it came to title to their Muskoka Reserve, water residents knew only frustration, silence, untruths, and worse. Before relocating, Indian Affairs told the Mohawks they could manage their new Ontario land as an Indian reserve under the new Indian Act of 1880. 
The land had been surveyed into rectangles as township concessions and lots, but Indian Affairs requested Ontario to treat the 25,582 acres it was selling as a single block for a traditional communal reserve under one crown patent for all the territory. However, when Ontario's cabinet authorized the sale in June 1881, it punitively stipulated that the Mohawks had to comply with settler requirements under the Free Grant and Homestead Act, a statute applying only to prospective farmers trying to qualify for free land. Neither the Mohawks nor Indian Affairs sought free land. Ontario had received full payment of $12,791 for the 25,582 acres. The Mohawks had a lawful right to be treated like anyone else buying Crown land outright, free to develop it as they saw fit on their own timetable. But this gambit was no surprise. Ontario had already demonstrated when refusing in 1875 to sell the Mohawks land near Mattawan that it did not want any new Indian reserves in the province. With one now seemingly rising in Muskoka, no difficulty that Ontario could impose on migrant Indians from Quebec would be too much. The deeper reason was that Ontario's Crown Lands Commission, in concert with other settler society public entities, sought assimilation of Indigenous cultures and eradication of First Nation practices. After a brief break, we'll see how that played out. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer, and we are examining the fate of the Mohawk community in Muskoka in its early decades after 1881. The province had already gone on record with Indian Affairs as refusing to be burdened with the maintenance of Indians. But Ontario's obstinacy ran far deeper than leaving Mohawks alone to look after their own needs. Rather than Rather than allowing land-owning Indians to live in traditional ways on a new reserve in Ontario, as both Indian Affairs and the migrating Mohawks wanted and had paid for, the province demanded they fulfill Homestead Act settler duties because doing so would force assimilation. Under the statute's provisions, only heads of families in Gibson would be issued a, lo a location ticket for their selected lot. After five years performing statute-specified work on their 100-acre parcel of land, that individual could be named owner of that specific property. This procedure made it impossible to hold the land as Indian Affairs intended and the Mohawks wanted 
as a block rather than individual lots so that it could be developed as a communal and lawfully operated reserve under the Indian Act for an integrated tribal community. Ontario's stance was a direct challenge to the federal government's jurisdiction for Indigenous peoples. In 1889, a provincial inspector went to Wada to see if the Homestead Act was being complied with, but was denied entry to the reserve. He was told by the chief that they had given up their land in Kanesataki to come to Muskoka because they wanted a larger quantity of land to keep their families together and did not want their patents issued to each locatee as individuals, as was done in the case of white settlers. For fear some of their people might sell their homes and squander proceeds and that undesirable people might own land amidst them. They were realistic. Individuality was secondary to the integrity of a mutually supporting community. But by this date, it was too late. Back in autumn 1882, because Ontario immovably insisted that the surveyed lots making up the Wada territory could only be acquired by individual heads of families, Indian Affairs reversed its position that the lands had to be treated as a single block. The department abandoned the Mohawks principles on the matter, which accorded, had accorded with Indian Affairs' own promise to them prior to relocation, that they could lawfully operate a unified community as a reserve. Falling in line now with the province's assimilationist policy, Ottawa had issued its own location tickets called Certificates of Possession under the Indian Act. They had been distributed to 32 individual Mohawks for the far-flung 100-acre lots each had chosen. Because landholding was by individual lots only, as Ontario engineered, many new problems appeared. Mohawk houses were spread so widely that any location for the church, school, or other communal place was inconvenient for many and an enduring source of water problems. Much graver would be how Ontario's divide-and-conquer policy weakened collective defense of the community against external forces. Ontario's bullish manner of dealing with the Mohawks extended to its hodgepodge landholding policies as developed in Muskoka by the 1880s. And this was a direct contributing factor to the need that the Mohawks had to defend their land. Now, traditional indigenous occupation and use of Muskoka territory for thousands of years had only loosely been addressed in the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850, by which Ojibwe chiefs ceded much land to the crown. Major outstanding issues directly affecting the Ojibwe First Nations, and possibly by extension, Potawatomi, Métis, and Mohawk people now in Muskoka, would be dealt with in 1923, specifically but unsatisfactorily, in the Williams Treaty that tried to address those problems. In short, there was still a lot of outstanding issues 
plaguing everything relating to land in Muskoka. And a second of those problems was squatter ownership of land throughout the district. A significant community of French-speaking Métis family whose cabins and cleared farmland in Gibson long predated the township's official surveying acquired ownership by the doctrine of squatters' rights. So Ontario sold land it did not own and seemingly did not even know it did not own. For provincial crown land, to which the government asserted ownership based on treaties, Ontario for decades had been selling property in Muskoka and issuing the buyers a crown patent, and that's a title deed, for their lots. The Mohawks, through the Agency of Indian Affairs using Sulpician funds, similarly acquired Muskoka Crown land, but received no Crown patent or any other Ontario deed or document evincing their ownership. In 1887, to address this overarching dilemma, Indian Affairs requested the province to issue a patent for the Mohawk lands in Gibson. The request was repeatedly ignored that year. Asked for again in 1888, and then again in 1889, Ontario did nothing. In 1889, 23 heads of Mohawk families who had been issued certificates of possession joined in by petitioning for deeds to their Gibson land. The only reply these requests and petitions got was taunting silence. The Wada Mohawks were, nevertheless, constantly reassured by Ottawa that the land was theirs and would not be reduced in size. Ontario's government was far from even-handed in land dealings. In addition to its double standard about issuing patents to buyers of crown lands, the Provincial Lands Commission transferred land considered unsuited for agriculture to influential private parties for recreational enjoyment. Thus, an extensive area of rocky Georgian Bay terrain in Freeman Township, next to Gibson, adjacent to, uh, was transferred to a white man's fishing club from Toronto. Such low-budget deals did not apply when Ontario sold hundreds of bedrock acres for Mohawks to farm. A related unfairness with land transfers arose when homesteaders, responding to Ontario's agricultural settlement incentive of free land, found the fixed grid boundary lines that surveyors imposed on Muskoka's rugged and watery landscape created many hundred acre lots with more rock and swamp than tillable acreage. Crown land agents readily gave an additional 100-acre lot to compensate. There you go. Despite Ontario requiring Mohawks to meet the conditions of the Homestead and Free Grant Act, no such make-up lots were ever offered by the Crown to offset their unfarmable lands. If you think this marks the end of government challenges to the Wada Mohawks, be sure to catch the third and concluding chapter of this saga with December's broadcast. Thank you for listening to Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka here on Hunters Bay Radio. Our producer in Huntsville is Matt Fisher. I'm Patrick Boyer. <laughs>